This episode contains material that might be triggering for some. If you need to stop the podcast at any time to take care of yourself, please do so. If you need support, you can call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 988. Hey everyone, welcome to the couch and the chair. I'm Kate. And I'm Michelle. And we're two mental health therapists here to talk about our experiences in therapy as clients on the couch and as therapists in the chair. Uh, If you have a topic idea or if you are a therapist who would like to join us on the show, sneak preview, we have someone here with us today, Mm -hmm. uh, you can go ahead and email us, thecouchandthechair at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do that through Patreon, patreon.com slash thecouchandthechair. Uh, and we'd love to if you joined our Facebook community, which you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash the couch and the chair. Kate, I just remembered something so exciting, which is that we have a patron to shout out this episode. That's exciting. And I'm so sorry. I don't see their name. Where is it? I Down forgot there. to add it to the notes. But Brianne, <laughs> we're shouting out Brianne today. So thank ah, you for Brianne, the thank you. Brianne. <laughs> oh, that's right. I... Yes, your letter is in the mail. Um, yes, we have letters coming to Brianne for being a patron. <laughs> yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so that's the intro and promotion stuff. So let's talk about what we're going to talk about today. Um, so today we have uh, Dr. Tara Sanderson here, and we're going to talk about burnout. Yeah. Um, Right. (laughs) That's no small topic. Of course, have we covered a small topic here yet? Are there small topics? I'm starting to wonder if they even exist. (laughs) um, So one of the things that I actually just learned this week, and so I was excited to share, is that the ICD-10, which I guess you could see is sort of the international Bible of diagnoses, as opposed to the DSM, which is just here. Um, uh, the ICD-10 just has added, uh, burnout into, uh, its newest edition. Um, and so it's apparently in there as a syndrome, and I thought I'd start by sharing how they define it. So, uh, the ICD-10 definition is that burnout is a syndrome conceptualized as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterized by three dimensions, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, and reduced professional efficacy. Um, I mostly like it. I'll admit that I feel a little bit like the hasn't been successfully managed feels a little like I get my hackles up, but maybe that's just me. (laughs) Feels Um, a little shamey. (laughs) does I so anyway I might quibble with that tiny bit of wording but other ways um you know that makes a lot of sense to me and certainly matches with my experience of burnout but um, it's going to be Michelle and um, Tara actually sharing today um, but I did before we jump in there want to say that while the ICD-10 definition only mentions workplace and both of the folks sharing today are going to focus in on the workplace, Burnout is certainly something that is experienced in other areas or arenas of our life, right? We can have home life burnout, work life burnout, right? Specific relationship burnout. Um, There's so many different areas that we um, can experience 
you know, the same sort of, as they say, uh, uh, conceptualized, right, this whole idea, this sort of collection of um, symptoms or experiences. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And with that, uh, Dr. Sanderson, I hand it over to you. Do you want me to call you Dr. Sanderson or Tara? Because my brain wants to go back and forth. And I don't know which one. <laughs> Most people call me Tara. My students okay. and my dad call me Dr. Sanderson. So, <laughs> you know, feel free to do what you wish. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me on here, especially about this topic. It is so wildly necessary that we continue to talk about this topic um, and continue to work on what we can do to be more proactive at decreasing our chances of running into burnout, because I do think that there are ways to help us manage our world so that we kind of hopefully just maybe hit edges of instead of diving headlong in. Because um, I do feel like especially in our profession, we end up getting kind of that uh, compassion fatigue, right? We oh, go yes. through this this intensity of caring so much about our clients and caring so much about the work that we do, that we start to um, like the line starts to fade away between what is our job to do and what is right to do or what is necessary to do. I think about all the times I've worked in community mental health or residential treatment and run into those problems of like, well, this is the right thing to do. So I guess I'll do a 16 hour or 20 hour day <laughs> and, um, and not recognizing that that was pushing me a little too far towards the line mm -hmm. of burnout. Um, I did actually my dissertation on burnout in graduate school. I was comparing uh, different religions uh, of residential treatment staff workers with their level of burnout or when they started to feel that level of burnout exhaustion. In my work, I, I noticed how quickly people would come in with this passion and verver to help these kids. Uh, we were doing teenagers, uh, roughly the age of 13 and up, um, kids who were really struggling behaviorally for the most part um, and had a, a combination of um, a borderline IQ as part of their diagnosis. So they were just uh, just shy of the average IQ and um, and then behavioral symptoms. And and what we would notice is that people would come in ready to go, ready to make change, feeling like they were going to see this big change in these kids. And then <laughs> they would get punched in the face too many times or kids would cuss them out or yell at them and they would just feel rejected and dejected in that process. And then a lot of them would would quit fairly soon, partially because of the physical violence, but also because of the loss of hope that like, wait a second, this we should be able to make change. Why aren't these kids getting better? which I think we know from a grander picture, like the trauma that these kiddos went through is not going to get fixed by just having a safe, happy home or a meal or, you know, things taken care of. There's a lot of work that's going to have to go into that phase as well. But the, the, I think the dramatic thing that I saw was, you know, there would be people at my, at my agency who would work there for 10, 15 years. And then there'd be people who lasted two months and then there would be people who struggled to last two or three years, but were burnt out for most of that process. And I just got so curious at like, who's who? And how can we predict who can stay long enough to really help these kids? Or, you know, what's what's going to what's going to work in this system? And so the one of the common denominators was we were a Christian agency. And so I wondered, like, who's staying here? How many of those people are Christians? Um if they're not Christians, you know, do they have some sort of a faith base? Like, where does all this, where does that enter in? And what I found was that 
there were there were definitely a lot of Christian folks, but in the research that I did, I used the Maslach burnout inventory as my um, as my analysis piece. And what I found out was that most of our Christian folks were the most burnout. Um, and that the people who had uh, mindfulness as a base of their practice, so like folks um, that were from the Hindu religion or some Buddhist religions, um, were, were much less burnout and stayed longer. And that really made me think a lot about what is what is different in how different religions see the world, different religions uh, ask for things to be taken care of or different. A lot of times in the Christian faith, there is a lot of like prayer for almost um, Santa Claus-esque to be like, please heal this person or please make this thing happen. Um, versus in a lot of the Eastern religions, it's more a, I need to slow down and see what's happening and take stock of what is going on and be present in this moment so I can make my most intentional choices. And I definitely don't need to get into which is right and which is wrong in things because that wasn't the purpose of my dissertation, nor does that have anything to do with burnout um, or even if there is a right and wrong in any of that, I think it's it really kind of, I've tried to just break down what was it that allowed for people to stay for so long. And part of it, I think, was hope. I think people holding a space for hope. And that the other part of it was people take things one day at a time, one moment at a time, and being very intentional in that process. That it 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 didn't allow for them to be so far across so many lines so quickly. Um, so I, uh, I think about that a lot when I work with new supervisees, um, when I go through, uh, different students or, um, other folks or do consulting with folks as they are going through their own burnout processes. And, um, I, I really thought that I had my handle on things. When uh, I got started in my private practice, I left that agency and uh, got started in my private practice. And I was super like gung ho about I can do this hard thing. <laughs> I'm going to run my own business. I'm going to do all this stuff. Um, and I, I got in touch with the therapist at that time because I thought it's going to be really important for me to kind of process all of this different weight of being in private practice without an agency overseeing me, without a supervisor overseeing me. It's going to be really important for me to process the weight of what I'm carrying. So I'm going to try and do some preventative work for that. And over the next four years, I, I really noticed how lonely being in private practice is, even with having students, even with having supervisees. It There was just a lot. It's a lot of clients' stories in my like mental bookshelf. Um, it's a lot of responsibility to make sure that no one's getting hurt by what we're doing or what I'm advising my supervisees to do. And then 2020 came and it became even more important that we were doing this work as mental health professionals and trying to navigate the stress of what was happening to my team as well as not being able to physically see them, um, transitioning everything to telehealth, all of those pieces, I went down absolutely uh, a rabbit trail of burnout, where I would wake up in the morning and want to just say, F this, like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do it anymore. Like, I don't care. Uh, where's the barista job that's available? How do I get out of all of this intensity and weight of, of everything? Cause it did feel like everything. Um, I did get out of bed. I did make it to work. I did do my job. Um, but there was this always this like giant weight on my shoulders saying, 
this is this is pointless this is hopeless this is too much um and at that point you know especially seeing the loss I guess that so many people were experiencing the loss of life, the loss of connection, um, just everything. And then starting to recognize some of those even losses in, in my own circle of people um, that had passed, whether it was COVID or other stuff. I just I really started to have those moments where like I I don't know that I can continue to be the supervisor I need to be, the boss that I need to be, because this is just so intense. It's just so much. So I, um, I really had to look hard at what were the things that I could change, because there were a lot of things that I was just doing to get by. So one of the things that uh, I think we all maybe I'm just generalizing, but maybe we all did a little bit was like we comfort ate we comfort drank, we comfort anything. I mean, most people lived in their pajamas for most of 2020, because it was just like, dressed is not an option today. I just I can't get out of something that's uncomfortable. Um, a lot of people modified their houses to try and like make it more doable and more, uh, more comforting to be there. And I definitely ran into that category of comfort eating. It was like, if anything sounds good, I am eating it because everything feels so terrible. I ended up manifesting a lot of the the physical symptoms of anxiety during that time, lots of chest tightness, lots of my body just not feeling like it was able to even relax. Um, I don't know that I really felt a lot of like, panicky parts of that but it was just everything was so tight like I was on edge like something bad was coming around the corner and I just I had to be prepared and that feeling oh would make me so um emotional right so at the drop of a hat any commercial um <laughs> that had like a family gathering I would just be like oh I have to cry um <laughs> more than just Sarah McLaughlin's like rescue these dogs <laughs> action right like it was legit everything I think I watched um Encanto when it came out like 50 times I watched it all the time because it just there was there was a lot of those moments of feeling the overwhelm and the pressure and then trying to get to this end result of relief. And I, I think I kept watching it, hoping that I would embrace some of that relief in that process because it was just because everything was just so hard. Um, so hard. My therapist and I were had up until 2020 been meeting pretty infrequently. I kind of would catch her whenever I had something I really needed to wrestle with or if we had a specific treatment goal during a time I would do that piece, which I encourage everybody I know. Um, well, I would encourage the world to everybody needs a therapist. Um, <laughs> even if you don't go weekly for the rest of your life, even if you just have somebody that you can call on occasionally because they already know your story. It's so great to have that person in your life. But I, uh, I, once I started having the transition between I don't effing want to do this job anymore to I'm not sure I want to be here anymore, like uh, this, that level of, of exasperation with the process of just managing the world as it was with everything that was going on, in, besides just 
the 2020 COVID issues, there was so much social unrest and so much pressure um, that when once I started having that thought of like, gosh, I wish I wasn't here anymore. I wish I could just close my eyes and let this all disappear for a minute was when I said, you know what, maybe I need to get back in touch with my therapist because that's not me. I, I live a life full of hope and change and growth. To be at a place where I'm just like, nah, I kind of just want to tap out meant something was supremely wrong. Something was very um, at, a, at a different point for me. So when I did reach out to my therapist and I did say those words out loud, she gave me such a comforting space to say, like, do you know that it's normal for people to have passive suicidal ideation for them to for you to experience this place of like, I just want it to all stop whether it's for a minute or for forever, like I just, I need a moment. I need to stop and pause. And that that is super normal. Um, and it, as long as we catch it early and don't move ourselves to a place where we are then actively contemplating, how do I do that? Um, then, you know, yeah, let's problem solve. Let's pre let's give ourselves some space to take time. And so my weekly, my weekly, um, clinical work therapy during that time was really built on giving me a space to just start like taking little tiny chunks off of my shoulders and saying like, so like I have a dozen ish supervisees and saying like, okay, well, let's, let's take this one supervisee that you've got and let's ask one question. Who else is supporting him besides you? And I would say, well, he's got a supervisor that does group supervision. He's got a, a supervisor who helps him with his theoretical orientation. And she, she said, then you can take a break for a minute from carrying his whole weight. He can go over here on a shelf because he's got two other people who, if anything goes wrong, he can call them too. It's not just you. And I had that like realization from just taking piece by piece of like, wait a second, how much of this am I pulling in to try and contain and hold and control versus how much of it is really only mine that I have to navigate and do. And that helped break down a lot of the pressure that was holding on to me. I mean, technically, I'm on his, um, his supervision plan. Um, so his clients are my clients, but he had supports in those instant moments. So I didn't have to be 100% available to him all the time. And working with my therapist really helped me to recognize how much I try and control and how much 2020 pushed that really giant button on my chest that says like when things are out of control, Tara does not do well. Um, and it really made me question and, and think more about where that came from and why it's important for me to have things in, in my control and what th what areas I need to continue to strengthen in order to be a little bit more preventative in the future. It probably wasn't the wisest choice in the middle of the pandemic to try and expand my practice fourfold. That I, I may have made a mistake there. <laughs> and, you know, we're here, we did it, it's fine. <laughs> we're just moving through. But it definitely makes me pause for like, how quickly do I want to grow? Let me ask that more intentional question. Let me take that pause and think about what what is coming next for me and what timeline that would look like instead of running headlong into something because I feel like it's necessary or it's good or it should be. Um, I kind of want to, I feel like that was a lot of big stuff and I kind of want to pause for a quick second 
and make sure you guys are okay. Cause I just told a lot of like really big things <laughs> in this space. And I know you guys talk about a lot of this stuff all the time, but. Well, I can start. I, I appreciate you giving pause. Uh, something that's standing out to me with what you're sharing is actually what you just said about like the giant button on your chest. It's like, I like control, that kind of an idea. And then like <laughs> having that just get disrupted in your world and having that button, right? We talk about this idea of like pushing people's buttons, like having that button pushed for yourself and how that was a factor and why you got burnt out because all these things were happening that were outside of your control. And I think COVID as a whole has been for years now things have been outside of our control. Nobody yeah. can control what course the pandemic is going to take or what kinds of restrictions or mandates the state is going to put into effect at any given point in time. And so I just really relate to that piece and that may come up a little bit in my share when I start talking about my experiences because, yeah, when I start to feel a lack of control... That certainly sends me on a downward spiral. And my therapist has really helped me too with what you were saying at the beginning of like, you know, that that concept of being in that one day at a time mentality and how that could be really protective against burnout mm -hmm. and trying to cultivate that for myself in all areas of my life of being a little more in like one day at a time, one moment at a time <laughs> yeah. so that I don't get to that spiraling place. But I yeah. just really relate to that. Um, so I, I feel like I'm sitting over here listening to you share and I'm just nodding. I'm like, yep, <laughs> I, I feel where she's at. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I, uh, I, I just was relating uh, to a lot of different factors in what you were sharing about with regards to like, for instance, I just took on my very first practicum student. I'm slated to take on my first intern supervisee in April. And, um, right. This, <laughs> this idea of doing what's right. Yeah. Right. Like, well, you know, this sense of I'm one of the few resources here, you know, trying to and prioritizing other people um, mm -hmm. and things like that. So, yeah, no, there was definitely a lot of stuff that I could connect with to things either historically or in my or in my story at the moment, I guess you could say. Um, but no, I, I don't know, in the weirdest way, not in a I mean, hmm, I'm sad that there are more people in these positions and. You know, I'm the thing I struggle with the most is like, am I too crazy to be a therapist? <laughs> um, and so anytime, you know, therapists, you know, share openly about deep mental health struggles, um, I find it, if anything, a little relieving. Yeah. Like, oh, thank you. Other people being open about this, knowing I'm not alone, right? A sense of connection. So, yeah, yeah. it doesn't tend to... Uh, me so much. Sorry, I'm gesturing now because everybody through the microphone definitely knows what I just did to go along with that sound <laughs> effect. Sometimes I forget that they can't see us. Um, <laughs> uh, right. Instead of being just really weighed down by it, I think yeah. I tend to feel like a sense of bond or connection from it. 
Yeah. And I, I really hope that by, by your guys's podcast, by, you know, us all realizing and recognizing how human we are as therapists, that we can start talking more on authentically about it, whether yeah. it's, you know, relating to people and saying like, Oh, I'm a therapist that has ADHD. And that, so this is how I navigate that within my practice. Or, you yeah. know, I'm a therapist who's, who's struggled with passive suicidal ideation and has needed to increase therapy in order to like continue to, make good decisions in life or yeah. people who have struggled with alcoholism or, you know, whatever it is, mm -hmm. like we're all just human and we're making choices in the best ways that we can. And, and we've got to keep, you know, sharing in appropriate ways that, mm -hmm. you know, that we're struggling and get the help that we need. And I think that exactly. that's, that's a key factor for me in talking to supervisees in um, navigating burnout in general. And it's a, it's a topic that I talk about with all of my clients mm -hmm. is recognizing that there is there is a line in which we need to notice for ourselves that something has changed that we're no longer living in our in accordance with our values or to who we know we are. And when we mm -hmm. notice that change, we can do something to make Kind of some efforts moving forward and my therapist really spent a lot of time you know helping me re recalibrate back to mm -hmm. what are my values what things are my responsibilities um i'm famous for saying like whose stuff is this um and often i have to remind myself that my supervisees getting licensed it's their stuff that they figure that out and how to do all of yeah. that. Like, it's not actually my job to get them licensed. I am one yeah. of many tools along the way. And so much of the time we take it as like, no, your whole ability to get licensed is in my hands. Mm -hmm. um, but it's really not. And the more I can give things back to where they belong and not try and take mm -hmm. the responsibility for them, the easier it is for me to recognize that I don't, I don't have to heal the whole world. I don't have to make everything right for everybody. Mm -hmm. I can just do what I can do. And the rest will get taken care of by everybody else who's responsible for that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other piece that my therapist talked a lot about with me was learning about self-compassion. Um, I have always heard, you know, like the term self-esteem, self-awareness, self, you know, whatever. And I kind of just originally had thrown self-compassion into that same pool of just mm -hmm. the self stuff and didn't really, <laughs> um, didn't really put a lot of credence into it until she and I started to um, purposely take some self compassion breaks in our therapy um, and personally uh, continue to work together on how we can find, find that balance of mm -hmm. my, I'm, you know, a pretty, um, I don't know if aggressive is the right word, but I have a lot of things that I want to do and I want to be perfect at all of them. Mm -hmm. And I try really hard on a lot of different areas. Um, so I'm a, I'm, I'm a pretty perfectionistic -y type of person. So self-compassion is not something you can become perfect at and be really like awesome at doing. Um, and so it was, it was quite a journey for her to break down a lot of those uh, preconceived notions about self-compassion being um, just like a one thing or a thing I can like master and be good at. And then I don't have to like work at it anymore. Um, yeah, right. It's, it's wild. Um, I had to work really hard on, um, and still do regularly had to work really hard on increasing my boundaries, understanding my limitations and really, um, work on confronting a lot of people pleasing, 
um, during mm-hmm. the season with my therapist because I recognized how all of those created this opportunity for burnout to be as bad as it was. And uh, by navigating those pieces now, I can enhance the relationships that I am working through and I can make better the coordination of efforts for good care for my team. So one of the things that uh, I added over this last year uh, for my supervisees was I added a group supervision that's led by someone not that's not me. Um, so they get more voices in their head of things that they can do and they can expand their growth as a clinician. Uh, but I don't have that responsibility and don't have to manage one more thing. And if I'm not available, they have another person to call and I don't have to be their end all experience. Um, and that really, uh, I just met with the group supervisor the other day and she said, you know, how's this going for you? Is this doing what you wanted it to do? Cause I told her the whole reason I wanted her to do it is cause I'm burnt out and I can't. Um, so let's, let's bring in another person. And, uh, and I said, absolutely. I feel, I, I feel like a whole boulder lighter knowing that mm-hmm. they've got someone else to call if something goes wrong. And, you know, we're all clinicians doing the work. So if I'm in session or if she's in session or whatever, we've, we've got avenues of other people who can be of help and be of service without needing it to all sit so squarely on my shoulders. I was really worried when I brought that to the team after figuring it out with my therapist um, of my team being really upset about like, well, no, we came here to work with you. Why would we want this other person? Um, but none of them said that that was all in my head. That was all my little self-importance nonsense. Um, and they were all just like, sweet. What is she about? Like, tell me about her theoretical orientation. This is so exciting. What are we going to learn? And which is exactly why I picked those people to be in my practice in the first place was to have people who were excited to learn and wanting to grow. And I, I had let my fear of disappointing them, that people pleasing, get in the way of them having access to something awesome. Um, and all the while carried that burden, right? So by releasing that, by, by turning down the people pleasing, I actually got way more than I bargained for between that clinician helping my team and my, t- my team growing and changing in a way that I couldn't have anticipated until I leaned into that part. I love that. That is awesome. Michelle, did you have any thoughts there before we transition into yours? Or are you feeling just that it's to... all stuff for me to take in and apply myself? I'm not. <laughs> I know. Yeah, no, delegator. absolutely. Especially with a lot of the supervisee stuff, right? As that, yeah. since I'm just starting out on that. So a lot of good information there. Yeah, I supervise Our people ideas. as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And even though I think, um, yeah, I, I totally understand what you're saying about like the pressure of that. There is a lot of pressure that comes with that. But I just started to really relate to what you were saying, too, about how like you're just a very driven person. You're used to just kind of taking things onto your plate. And then you don't realize how much you've taken on until things start actually falling off the plate. And then you're like, oh, that's right. Like, oh, <laughs> I took on all of this. I've been, you know, so excited and driven to do all of this. Um, but then it becomes too much. I... I relate to that. So I just am taking it all in of like, oh, yeah, these are good reminders for me, too, about delegating and making sure that I'm not believing in my head that everything is on me when in many areas of my life, not everything is on me. I just tell myself that story. So helpful reminders, Tara. (laughs) Yeah, good, good. 
And I do want to say that, like, I don't think that my burnout is healed at this point. Like, I think that I have done a lot of good work. And I think that I am relieved of a lot of the pressures I was putting on myself and, um, and of the intensity of of the situations. But I don't think that my burnout is done. I still run into those times where, you know, random Tuesday morning when I booked one extra (laughs) session, and I shouldn't have, or (laughs) whatever, um, where I just kind of give that big, like, internal harumph of like, oh, do I really have to do this again today? This doesn't feel good. But I I get those opportunities to say like, okay, well, let's check in with myself. Let's do a self-compassion break about this feeling, because you're definitely moving into the shamey world of wanting to be mad at yourself about this. But let's let's do this piece. Let's take a moment. Let's be intentional about like what things today could be moved, what things today don't actually ever have to have been done. Maybe I was making an appointment with somebody that I thought I needed, but could totally be an email. Um, You know, our world is not (laughs) immune to that concept. Um, You know, what things what things do I need to do to feel comfortable today doing this this really tough job? Um, And I, I definitely don't have as much of the passive suicidal ideation. It's that part has definitely gone away. I don't have the chest pressure as much anymore. But I have those I have those little still those inklings that make me remember that I have to keep using my tools. Uh, Because I do think that burnout uh, sometimes is a big roaring fire. And sometimes it's that little tiny, you know, candle wick, and it's just smoldering in there somewhere. And so you do have to continue to do the work and be aware um, and, you know, see my therapist regularly and ask the questions that are hard. When I start noticing I'm saying things to my therapist like, you know, things are all right. Those are the moments that I say, let's take a minute before I actually finish that sentence, (laughs) because I'm sure that smoldering in there somewhere is, is something that I need to work on. And usually for me, it's the people pleasing part of not wanting a client to have to wait till next week. So I'll go ahead and do an eight o'clock session this week, or whatever kinds of things um, that I need to keep keep check on in there. But um, I do think that I think I'm better than I was. And I am going to continue to work on getting better. That is excellent. I think, right, the importance of acknowledging how many things are ongoing work. Yeah. Right. Um, and not just a, a task that you complete and move on from. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Michelle, I think we're ready to transition to your sharing. Yeah. Um, one thing that I was really excited about with having you on as a guest, Tara, and learning more about your background um, working in residential settings with teens who had behavioral issues, um, because that's where my professional journey started once I graduated with my bachelor's degree. And that's the experience that I'm going to be talking about today is the burnout that I experienced when I did work in a residential setting for 14 months. That's how long I was there for. So Um, I guess it felt important to kind of, how would I explain it? Set the scene, uh, (laughs) lay some groundwork, do some explanation of some background before I get into talking about the burnout that I experienced and how it showed up for me. But the place that I worked at, I I realized (laughs) as we're doing this episode today, I was like, wow, it's been 10 years. 
because mm-hmm. um, I worked there 2011 to 2012. So it's been 10 years since I worked there. And it was um, a place called Phoenix House. And it was a literal house. It was a mm-hmm. house with six bedrooms for 16 girls. And um, as you were saying, Tara, with the teens that you worked with, the teens that I worked with, yeah, they had all kinds of behavioral issues, um, as we called it. That's a big umbrella term. But I mean, yeah, like self-harm, drug use, um, history of physically assaulting people. Some of them had the label of SAY, which stands for sexually aggressive youth. Um property destruction. I mean, the list could go on and on, but more or less, these girls were winding up at Phoenix House because a lot of times they had been kicked out of multiple foster homes and no foster home would take there, would take them anymore. And some of the girls would stay very briefly, um, you know, a couple weeks, a couple months. Some of the girls were there for a couple years. It just depended on when they would turn 18 and age out of the system, or if they were able to get to a place where their behaviors improved enough that a foster home would take them. Or sometimes, and these were really great happy ending stories where family members would come into the picture and say, hey, you know, I'll take my niece in and that kind of a thing. Um, And of course, every single one of them had a horrific trauma history. Um, I have heard stories that no one would ever want to hear um, from working with these kids. So this was my first job with my bachelor's degree. And the way that it went about with me getting the job, this is important to say because Um, there were signs from the beginning, not just that this would be challenging work. I knew this would be challenging work and I wanted challenging work. I wanted to work with teens. That's who I thought I was going to work with for my career. Um, I wanted to work with teens and I wanted to get into a setting that was going to challenge me because I wanted to have good experience for when I applied to graduate programs for counseling. So I knew I was only going to be at whatever job that I got um, for about a year before I would then start graduate school. But I wanted to find something that was tough. So I knew the work would be tough, but I saw signs really early on that it was going to be more than just working with these girls that was going to be tough, that I was entering a system that was probably pretty broken. Um, because in a lot of residential settings, but you'll find this in all kinds of different job fields where you enter a workplace and everybody is just unhappy. Nobody knows what is going on. Um, everyone's kind of already burnt out. And then you come in uh, and like you were saying, Tara, right? Like with so much hope and, uh, all the people around you don't have that hope anymore. And what that's like. So the way that I got this job at Phoenix House I um, I did a job interview for this company that was actually for a very different position. And they told me at the job interview, they were like, well, we actually have this residential house called Phoenix House, working with teen girls. We really need people there. So it was totally different than the job I applied for, but I was intrigued. And I was like, oh my gosh, that would actually be great for me. I'm interested. And they're like, awesome. Why don't you go and visit it? 
Um, and here's a day and time that you can go and see what you think and then let us know. And, you know, we can consider hiring you from there. And I was like, fantastic. So I was really excited. I showed up. I knocked on the door. I rang the doorbell. I knocked on the door. I rang the doorbell. On and off for about, I think I was there for 30 minutes. I was just, I don't know what I was thinking, but I was like, someone's got to be home, right? Like they told them I was coming, right? Finally, I got in my car, almost in tears, and I called my mom and I was like, mom, I don't know what to do. Like I was really excited about this and like nobody's answering. And she was just like, Michelle, if you've been there for 30 minutes, like you just need to leave. Like, <laughs> Call the person who interviewed you, explain the situation. I was like, okay. And I was about to drive away and a van pulled up and parked. And I was like, oh, someone's home. So I got out of my car. I went up. And I figured that they would be like, oh, my gosh, you're Michelle. Oh, we're so sorry we missed you. Something happened. So I walk up and they look at me like, who are you? And I'm like, oh, I'm I'm here to, you know, do like a little site visit. And so-and-so sent me. And they're like, oh, um, okay, well, we had no idea you were coming, but um, come on in. I was like, okay. Showed me around for about five minutes and I left. And I said to myself, I'm not taking this job. It's completely professional. I'm not doing this. Like, it just put really bad taste in my mouth. And then I kept applying for jobs. Again, I'm fresh out of school with my bachelor's degree, and I'm ready and wanting to dive into the field. I really wanted to find a job that would be full-time. And I was having a hard time finding full-time positions that would take me with no experience. And a few weeks later, I was job hunting and I came across a job posting for Phoenix House. And so I reached back out. I had already contacted the person and turned down the job. I didn't really give a reason. So I reached back out and I kind of made something up. And I was like, oh, my circumstances have changed. I'm still interested if you guys are. And she said, yes, we'd love to have you. And so I started. But that was my initial experience. And it's funny because then over the 14 months that I worked there, that happened, I mean, five or six times where there would be a knock on the door and I'd open the door and someone would be there and they're like, oh, I'm here to, you know, so-and-so referred me and I'm here. And I was like, oh gosh, no one told me. And I would always try to put on a really happy face and be really positive because I knew what that felt like. But there were early signs that things were going to be hard about working here. I was promoted to being a supervisor three months in because as Tara said, uh, there can be a lot of turnover, <laughs> a lot of turnover. I mean, I can't even tell you how many staff there were who quit after their first week. It happened a lot. Um, so three months in, I was promoted to supervisor and I took the supervisor position because I wanted the dollar more an hour raise. Um, and I also knew that nobody else was going to take it. I didn't really feel ready for it, but we needed a supervisor and I had seniority at that point. So someone had to do it. So I did it. And um, in many ways, I really liked being a supervisor because I liked training the new staff. I really liked that. But as Tara was talking about, it puts more on your shoulders 
there's a lot more responsibility. There were many times where like it's it would be me and one other staff there and five or six girls and I'm the top of the food chain. So if something is going down, it's up to me to make the decisions about how we're going to respond. And that was a lot. And even though I really liked the staff that I worked with and I liked the program manager and all of that, um, one thing that was really hard for me is that with the people who were above me, the program manager, supervisors who had been there longer, we were in a job where you were going to make mistakes all the time. That was just my two cents. You're constantly having to think on your feet. You're constantly encountering a situation that you weren't trained for, you've never encountered before, and you're having to just do your best. And I remember there was one time where, I don't remember the specifics now, but I remember that I had had a challenging situation with one of the girls, and um, I responded in a way that wound up backfiring. Like I did what I thought was best. And then later on, something happened and I was like, oh shoot, I shouldn't have done that. And I knew instantly, I was like, oh, I made a mistake, oops. And when I was called into the office to talk about that, I immediately owned the mistake. I was like, yeah, nope, I learned from that. I see that I shouldn't have done what I did now, but this is why I did it, but this is what I would do differently next time. I immediately owned it. And it felt like that wasn't enough. Hmm. Um, I really hoped that then the then the program manager would be like, okay, great, bye, <laughs> cool. And instead it was just rehashing, going over why I shouldn't have done the thing in the first place. And I was like, I get it. I know why. Um, and there were times as a supervisor where I was expected to give that kind of feedback to people or I needed to, right? Like they would make a decision that was, that I was like, oh no, we, we can't do that. And I, and I wanted to be so mindful of how I gave that feedback because nothing feels worse when you're already doing a very challenging job to then get feedback from your colleagues that you're not doing it good enough. Yeah. That just feels so awful, right? So shamey. We used that word earlier. So shamey, especially when you already know you messed up. Um, so when did the burnout creep in? I mean, early, <laughs> very, very early for me. And I kind of conceptualize burnout now, like when I'm working with my clients, I think of it kind of as three different categories of mental, emotional, and physical burnout. And some people experience all three at their job. Some people experience just one or two. I'm going to talk more about this in the tip, so I won't say too much about it right now. But I experienced all three at this job. And I'll just give some examples of how I experienced each one. So basically, the mental burnout was because you always had to be a few steps ahead of everything that was going on. And I was juggling a lot. So, right, these girls live here. This is their home. So they need meals cooked. <laughs> um, they all have just like schedules that they go through each day. So you're having to make sure that like those needs are being met for them, right? 
Um, but then for me, because I was a supervisor, I was also juggling training new staff a lot of the time. Sometimes each girl had like different needs or like a different type of safety plan. And so you had to know the different restrictions for each girl. Um, there was a lot to think about, um, a lot to juggle mentally. Um, for me, out of the three different types of burnout that I just named, the emotional was the worst. Um, and you named some of this, Tara, when you were talking about, right? Like you have staff that would, of course, like get hit. And I'm trying to think of like, what is the worst thing that happened to me when I was there? Thankfully, I never had to go to the hospital. I never needed medical attention um, for an assault. I never got bit. Girl, I had a girl try, but I didn't get bit. <laughs> I never got my hair pulled. I never got, and you're trained on how to like respond to these things. But then you're in the moment. And of course, it's so different. But um, I mean... Yeah, I had a girl almost hit me over the head with a chair. Um, this voice came out of me that I didn't know was possible. And I told her to put the chair down and she listened. Otherwise, she would have, like, caused me serious harm. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I had to put girls in physical holds um, to stop them from harming themselves and other girl staff. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I was called a bitch and worse every single day. Um these girls would sometimes be able to pinpoint exactly what your weakness was and they get you with it. Um, they're smart. Um, and there were many times where we had girls, I was like, this girl is smarter than me, <laughs> but I'm the staff. So I have to outsmart her. Like I have to, again, be thinking all of these steps ahead. Um, but for me, I mean, a lot of times what would get me, and I would try not to show it to the girls, but um, when the girls would tell me that I was like a bad staff or like I was their least favorite staff, um, or they would actually point out, because again, I'm not perfect. They would point out, they're like, Michelle, you shouldn't have done blah, blah, blah. And they would actually be right. Like if I would make a mistake, I'm like, oh yeah, they're right. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but the emotional toll that it takes on you, no matter who's doing it, to be called names, to be physically threatened most, if not every day you're at work, that takes a lot out of you. Um, this was a job where I had to be on call. So when you're on call and you have that little, it was a foot phone, cell phone <laughs> on you at the time and you have to keep that with you and you couldn't, our rules for being on call, you couldn't be within like 30 miles away from where the house was in case you needed to like physically show up and respond to a situation. Um, so emotionally, I was always worrying mm -hmm. about work even when I wasn't on the clock. Um, and you go into work each day and you just don't know what the day's gonna bring. Um, you never, ever know. One of my very early days, like I'm talking like my within my first week, we took the girls on a really, really fun outing. The outing went great. We like went to the fair or walked around or something like that. And then afterwards we were gonna go um, get some fast food and they go home and I can't remember what happened, but one of the girls, her attitude just shifted and she decided she wasn't going to put her seatbelt on. Well, naturally the rule is we're not all buckled. The car doesn't move. 
So the staff who was driving, she was like, all right, we have to sit here until she puts her seatbelt on. She wasn't budging. One of the other girls started to get really distressed by this. One of the girls who was like lower cognitive functioning. She was having a really hard time and she started like pleading with her, please put on your Z-belt, please, please. We just want to go, please, come on, please. And the girl who wasn't putting on her seatbelt, she was getting agitated by this. And she was like, if you don't stop, I'm going to hate you. And the girl was then like, come at me, bitch. Well, she did. She got over the seat. I tried to stop her and she clocked her in the face and made her bleed real good. And then we had to go to the hospital and there you go. That was an average day. It all would turn at any point in time. So just that constant state of worry when you're at work, when you're off the clock, that's pretty emotionally taxing to say the yeah. least. And then physically demanding. Um, I mean, it was a job where I was on my feet all day. So the way that it would work is you didn't actually truly get breaks. Um, Cause there were really at most two staff at a time. It just depended on the staff to client ratio is what it's called. And we had a three to one ratio. So that means if there were only three girls at the house and then give it time, we only needed one staff. If there, if we had all six beds filled and all six girls were at home, we needed two. Occasionally we would have three if we had a staff who was in training. I actually really appreciated the days where we had a staff that was in training because it was just an extra body to be there. But otherwise it would be me either by myself or me and one other person. And sure, you ate dinner, you ate lunch, but you did it with the girls. <laughs> we all sat at the table and we all ate meals together. So you didn't get like a 30 minute break where it's like, all right, you get to like go and be away and do whatever you want to do. We didn't have that. So I was literally on my feet all day. Never sitting down except for if like we were, again, eating a meal or watching a movie <laughs> together. Like it was just very demanding. And I didn't even realize how common this was. But I my shifts, um, this also feels important to name. Um, my shifts were that I would work Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, 1 to 11. And then Saturdays I worked 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. So I worked four 10-hour days. But this is a lie. Um, of course, this is a lie. This is a lie because I was asked to come in early, more times than I can count, if a girl like got suspended from school while well, they needed a staff there early to be with her. And the days that I stayed late far outnumbered the days that I got off on time because if a girl had assaulted someone, we had to write a report about it. If a girl had run away, we need to call the police. Okay, I have to stay late to wait for the police to show up so that we can do the police report for her. I mean, so four 10-hour days. Yeah, right. I mean, it was really more often like four 12-hour days or I get called in on my days off. Um, and it was really difficult for me too, going from getting off at like 11 p.m. on Friday night to then coming back in at 8 a.m. Saturday morning. That was mm. rough. Um, so my shifts were long. You don't get breaks. And there would be days where I would only go to the bathroom once. I literally wouldn't think about it. I would hardly be drinking water. I just wouldn't be thinking about my needs. 
So I wasn't probably eating enough because I'm just trying to like eat dinner real quick <laughs> with the girls. I wasn't going to the bathroom. I wasn't drinking water. I wasn't sitting down. Um, I wasn't taking care of myself physically when I was at work. Um, so all of these things, of course, led to burnout. Of course they did, right? Like I'm going back, I'm scrolling up through our notes, Kate, to the definition you read earlier. Feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion. Check. <laughs> um, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job. Check. Did I ever want to go into work? No. Why would you if there's a chance you're going to get punched in the face that day? Why? Why would anybody want to do that? And then, I mean, the third piece that Kate read in the definition is reduced professional efficacy. Um, and, you know, again, there would be times where I would make like honest to God mistakes. Um, but I do remember there was a time where one of the girls, she was complaining about me. She was like, Michelle, you're the worst stuff. And I, okay. Um, and a lot of the girls actually said I was their favorite. And I took pride in hopefully being able to strike that balance between like, I stick to the rules, but we also have fun, right? Like I'm going to mm -hmm. play cards with you and I'm going to, you know, straighten your hair and like, we can have fun, but like, you also know that you're not going to get away with stuff with me. And she was saying this to me over and over. And finally, I think one day I was like, can you tell me why? She's like, you're not nice. And in my mind, I'm like, what is she talking about? I'm the nicest, blah, blah, blah. She was a new girl, so she didn't know me very well. But I actually paused one day and I thought about what she was saying. And I was like, is there any truth to this? And I realized actually that she was kind of right. Because during that time, we had a lot of turnover with the girls. And so whenever we got a new girl, that was always really rough. Um, the adjustment period for them, the adjustment period for the staff and the other girls. We had a lot of new girls coming in. We had a lot of new staff coming in. And I was not doing some of the little things that I normally mm. tried to do with the girls. I wasn't like when they would do something being like, hey, thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it. You know, I, I just, I wasn't, I was all work, no play. I was just putting my head down and I was getting frustrated more easily, even though I was trying not to show it. And I, I wasn't having any fun with them. And let's be honest, there were days that were fun. They were, <laughs> they were rare, but we had those days where everyone was getting along and we, yeah, got to go out to the movies and got to go for walks and got to sit and play Monopoly. And like, we had fun times. But um, my mentality was shifting. And I did say to her at one point, I, I went to her and I said, you know what? I am really going to think about what you said and I'm going to work on it. And her, her and I's relationship did a 180 because I did start saying thank you to her for those little things. And it changed, it changed things. So professional efficacy, right? Going back to that piece of the burnout definition, like, yeah, I did have times where I wasn't doing my job as well as I could have done it because of being burnt out. Um, the way that I knew I was burnt out, I think the first way that I knew was when I was driving to work one day and I was getting off the freeway exit and I just felt my heart pounding out of my chest. What was that about? It's what I thought to myself. What? what? Um, and that started happening daily. And that's how I knew I was burnt out. I would be walking up to the front door. 
dreading, hating going into work. Um, and a lot of times I think my heart would never slow down my entire shift. So that's not good from a health perspective to be having an elevated heart rate. Um, that doesn't go back to baseline. And I knew I was burnt out too, because I couldn't stop thinking about work when I wasn't there. That's a huge red flag for burnout when you can't leave work at work. Um, and I wasn't, um, on my days off, whether I was on call or not, all I did was think about the girls and think about what could be happening. And I don't think it helped that sometimes as staff, I think to like create a sense of camaraderie or community, we'd like text each other. So I would get mm. texts from staff being like, so-and-so went to juvie again tonight. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> I have to go in tomorrow and like, oh, you know, or like giving me a heads up about things. Hey, just so you know, so-and-so got suspended at school today. Um, so they're going to be home when you show up tomorrow. <laughs> but I was never not thinking about work. Mm-hmm. So this is how I knew I was burnt out. And honestly, the thing that got me through the burnout was having a light at the end of the tunnel because I knew that I was going to stop this job when I began grad school. If I hadn't had that light at the end of the tunnel, Terry, you said this, right? There were the staff that were there for like 10 to 15 years. There were the staff that were there for only two months. And then there were the staff who were there for like two to three years, but they were burnt out the whole time. And that last one would have been me. Yeah. Like I would have tried to gut it out for as long as I could have. And I would have probably stayed for a couple more years, but I would have hated every minute of yeah. it because the longer I stayed, the worse my burnout got, the worse my stress got. Um, and so pretty much for probably about the last six months of my time there, I was counting down the days. <laughs> I yeah. was just reminding myself, Michelle, you have three more months. You have two more months, right? You, you can do this. You're tough. You can get through this. You're not going to be here forever. Um, of course, the irony of this is that I cried when I left. Um, because you grow to love these girls. Mm -hmm. You grow to love them even when it's been awful. <laughs> um, because it wasn't all the girls for why it was awful. It was a system that was paying their employees $10 an hour. And again, mind you, this was 10 years ago. Um, I have no idea what they would pay people now. I mean, what, probably like $14 an hour, which <laughs> depending on where you're listening in the country, that may sound like a lot, but in Washington state, that is nothing. Um, so you're making very little money doing a job that puts you in physical harm's way every day. And like I was saying, emotional harm's way more than anything. Mm -hmm. And you're asked to work long hours. I mean, it, you mix all this up. And how could anybody get out without any burnout after enough time? Um but I guess to wrap up my sharing portion, I wasn't in therapy at the time when I worked at Phoenix House. I had not yet met Celia because I met Celia and started working with her in 2016. So I was not in therapy. Um, oh God, I wish I had been. Um, but I, what do I think would have helped me with burnout at the time? I really think I needed some rituals that would have actually charged my batteries. So on the days that I worked, I really just existed. 
Um, you know, because I worked long hours. So I'd get off work, I'd come home, I'd be wired, right? Like <laughs> I'd get off, hopefully, like I said, hopefully at 11, I'd get home by 11.30. And then I'd probably stay up till at least 1 a.m. Um, going to bed at 2 a.m. was kind of my norm. Um, it would just take me a little while to like wind down. Um, and then I'd wake up the next morning at around like 10. I'd watch Price is Right, which I love. And then I'd get ready and I'd go to work and I'd do it all again. Um, I didn't really have any true rituals. I like didn't go for walks. I didn't like I didn't actually do anything on my days of work that truly set me up for taking care of myself before and after. I just didn't I just didn't really do that. And I wish I had had some rituals that would have actually charged my batteries better. Um, One thing that I did start to do that helped is that I a few months in because I had a a couple times where I was like really dreading going into my shift because of one reason or another. Like, let's say on Saturday when I had worked my final shift of the week, let's say things were in like a shitty, terrible, awful place. Like all the girls are wanting to kill each other. It's just a mess. And then I'd go back in Wednesday and I'd be like, oh my God, it's going to be terrible. Today's going to suck. And then I'd go in and it would be a lovely day. Nothing would go wrong. And I'd realize, oh, I just spent three days stressing out about nothing. And I truly realized how quickly the tides could turn. You could have a great day that could turn terrible very quickly, but you could have a terrible day that could also turn great just as quickly. And so I really started to try to remind myself to go into each shift with an open mind. And that helped just to remind myself, like, I don't know what's going to happen today. And that was kind of freeing (laughs) when I actually willingly let go of control. (laughs) That was freeing. Um, The other thing that I wish I had done more is take time off. I took one vacation in 14 months. And to get that vacation, my family and I, we were going to go to Disneyland and I had to fight, fight for the time off. I certainly had accumulated enough time off, right, after working there. Um, According to, you know, my pay stubs and paper, on paper, I had enough time to take off. Um, But we were so short-staffed. I mean, they probably talked to me three times about, like, Michelle, is there any way you can shorten this? And is there any of this? And I, they almost were like, we're not going to be able to approve your time off, even though I'd give it, like, two months notice on it and everything. Um, but I wish I had taken more time off. And I wish that I had stood my ground more on that because I was very wishy-washy about it. I was like, well, if I can't, I can't. And I wish now I had just been a little more, like, telling them, like, you guys are going to have to figure it out. I'm taking this time off. I have earned it. I have it. I'm taking it. <laughs> um, so I wish I had done that more. I wish I had taken more time off. I think that would have really helped with my burnout. But I didn't. I only took like, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe cumulatively in total, like 10 days off the entire time that I worked there for 14 months. Maybe, maybe if that. Um, <laughs> I just didn't. I just didn't take time off. Um, and I wish that I had. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess that's that's where I'll wrap up with my experiences. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious too to hear thoughts from each of you if anything stood out or anything like that before we shift into tips. <sighs> Gosh, yeah, it's I don't know, Michelle. I first of all, I'm even every time I hear about your time there, I am I don't know a little more glad to have not gone through it. Um, 
So I, yeah, you know, like how could anyone not be burnt out? I, you know, as you both mentioned, the people who live that, you know, go through those things 10 and 15 years, I ran into that in community mental health too. My first job in community mental health that I had to leave to, then you, you met me at the second one, Michelle, but Mm -hmm. uh, at the first one, there was one gal who had been, and I'm not exaggerating, she had been working in more or less that job, you know, things had changed over the course of that time, but longer than I had been alive at that point. And I was like, what is your magic? <laughs> because not only was she still working there, but she was like cheerful. Yeah. She wasn't jaded. She wasn't cynical. She wasn't flippant. She was passionate and present. And I was like, I don't understand. I've been here six months and I want to kill everyone, myself, the clients, you, I, like all the You're people. Just, done. Just, <laughs> just done. I'm done with everything. I'm sad I chose this degree. Like, why? Why are you happy? Um, so clearly there are protective mechanisms that I did not understand at the time. Um, and was baffled by. Uh, but um, I don't know. So I was just I was just thinking about the fact that, I don't know, it's just quite the a story and quite the thing to set you up, I think, maybe in a way on a, well, I know what the bad is like. So I've got a good idea of what direction to lean to not do this to myself again. Mm-hmm. So hopefully it was a learning experience. But yeah, it sounds hard and awful. And I am always impressed and grateful when I hear you talk about it. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it amazes me how many of our stories are so similar for people who've worked residential. Like, you know, we can we can say the words three to one ratio and we just nod and we're like, yeah, we know what that is. Yep. <laughs> like, I know that math. <laughs> <laughs> you know, of uh, being able to like, you know, go a whole day without peeing. That's mm-hmm. it, it felt like a skill at one point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I, I don't even have to like remotely think that I have a bladder. I just don't even need to. Mm-hmm. Um, to now I've trained my body to pee after every session. <laughs> like, you know, like I go take my little bathroom break. I come back in like this is how my day goes. Um, it's very different. It's a, such a different mm-hmm. mentality and going through that whole process. Yeah, I resonated with so many of those parts. And, and you know, as I, you know, I worked at my last agency for 14 years. Um, and through that process did everything from floor work to management to supervising. I ended up leaving the agency when I was the chief operating officer. So I was just under the executive director. And part of the reason I took every mantle that they would throw at me was like, where can I make change? What could, what Mm -hmm. could I do to help foster and and change significant process through this through different levels of the agency? So once I got into a manager position and the job at the time was that you worked four shifts and you got one eight hour shift to manage the, the group home. Um, That was our, that was our process. And I was like, so I work for as a floor staff and then I get eight hours to make sure that everything's running good. Yeah, it seems problematic. What can we do to change that? Like, how do we do the math financially to make the math of, you know, being able to do this job work? So by the time I left being a manager and moved into upper treatment, we were doing two shifts on the floor and three shifts was management, which although definitely still not enough was better than it was when I got there, right? And that was kind of my whole mentality moving from thing to thing was like, how can I make this incrementally better? Because it doesn't have to exist the way that it does. Because Mm -hmm. how it is existing is causing so much pain and perpetuating so much trauma. 
and we we have to do better. Um, and then, you know, by the time I got to the, the the highest position that I was at that company, I realized that it wasn't really this company's problem. It was such a bigger system mm-hmm. problem. Yep. And every residential staff person that I meet and talk to since then, like it just continues that that train of thought in my mind of like, this isn't a problem that any individual agency can solve. This is a problem that needs to be addressed at such a higher level um, to really like evaluate. <laughs> you know, I think about how much does it cost for a kiddo to be in daycare? I don't know if you guys have kids. I don't have kids, mm-hmm. I, but I hear mm-hmm. about it all the time from people who have kids of like, this is how much it costs for a child to be in daycare for only the six hours between nine and three, right? Versus here's 24 hours of really intensive behavioral treatment yeah. plus housing plus food for these kiddos who can't be in foster care for a variety of traumatic reasons. The math does not make sense on this plan. (laughs) Like, There's got to be some systemic changes. And I think all the more reason why moving into private practice and and doing the work that I do now, um, I really do, you know, think about and honor all of those people who are who are frontline staff. You know, I feel bad for all of the group home staff that aren't considered frontline health healthcare workers because they sure were. Um, (laughs) They were going in and doing a job when everybody else was closing up shop and going home. Uh, yeah. Because you can't leave eight teenage girls sitting in a house by themselves all day. <laughs> like, no, somebody had to be so there. Um, so really, you know, trying to figure out, yeah, lots of ways to to think about and support people who don't mm-hmm. fit the traditional kind of guidelines. That makes sense. Um, normally, Michelle or Tara, I'd lean into one of you starting with tips, but I, I kind of want to snag the reins and do the first one today because I think it'll sort of set us up in some ways um uh which in my notes what I have is don't just be reactive be proactive um I can't remember if I've told this story on this podcast already if I have everyone bear with me um but it is a lot of where I'm coming from for this particular tip. I swear it's brief um not too long after I'd left community mental health entirely and was in private practice solely I was complaining about my schedule to someone who, uh, you know, rented an office in the same suite as I did. Um, Because I'd had some stupid thing. I'd scheduled myself like eight people with a half an hour break or something ridiculous like that. And (laughs) uh, and this office mate, now friend and colleague of mine, just looked me dead in the face and with absolute deadpan, she just went, your boss is a dick. I was like, oh, shit. Oh, shit, I'm my boss! <laughs> I'm the only one that did this! No one made me. I'm not being, you know, I'm not in an agency where they're shoving 11 sessions into a 10-hour workday for me and I have no choice on the matter, right? Like, I'm in control of this. And that, to me, has been a check that I, it's weird, just like, your boss is a dick is now, like, the phrase I say to myself is sort of like, is this true if I do or do not do this thing? So if I'm considering, you know, calling out sick, I'll be like, your boss is a dick. And I'm like, is that true if I do go or don't go? (laughs) Um, Right. But this idea of preventing burnout instead of fixing it. Um, I certainly didn't do that in agency work. Jesus, fuck. Um, uh, But in private practice, and I think I could have looked after this better even in community mental health as a setting. um, 
Like, for instance, I don't know, my father is a boomer and will be like, you have debt. Why don't you simply work seven days a week? You are your own boss. You can do that. You can work as much as you want to. And I was like, I'd like to continue this job more than a year. (laughs) Like, I think I'd like some longevity here. Right. And so it's less for me now about burnout of the moment. Not that that doesn't show up in, you know, COVID. Anyway, whatever. Um, I'm not personally sharing, but, like, <laughs> you know, but it's this idea of how do I not get there, right? Yeah. If I can prevent it. So could I work seven days a week? Yeah, for a while. I worked six days a week between community mental health and private practice for a while. I can do that for a while. Um, but the longer I do that, the the faster I'm going to get to the end of my career, um, I feel like. And so I'm like, yeah, no, I only work four days a week because I'd like to be working when I'm 60. (laughs) Um, And something in me feels like I only have so many sessions in me. (laughs) I just rushed through them. I'm just going to be out of the career in a decade. Uh, Well, another decade, I guess. Oh, fuck. I've already been in it over a decade. Um, We're not talking about that. I'm older than I think I am. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, just trying to do things to not get there. Thinking maybe a little bit less of what can I do right now and more about what can I sustain. Um, cause it's so easy to take advantages, take advantage of our immediate resources, um, without realizing that we're stealing <laughs> from our longer term resources. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's my first tip is just whatever, in whatever ways you can think a little bit less about yourself in the moment and a little bit more about the you down the line that you are queuing up for whatever future yeah. they're going to be living in. Um, so yeah, there you go. That's my first tip. Um, what about you, Tara? What's your first thing? You know, that really uh, that really, re- really made me think about being intentional with what's going on, right? So one of the tips that I wanted to share was taking, in, taking time to check in with yourself and notice things. Notice when things don't feel quite right. Notice when things are a little bit off track. And when you do that, if you are able to then think about that intentional piece of like, am I veering in this direction because that's where I want to head? Or am I veering in this direction because it's easier? Or am I veering in this direction because I'm scared? Like, what? why am I, why is something not quite right on the track? And answering that question can help us figure out whether or not we need to veer back to our, our main goals, um, or if we need to lean into something that's hard, or if it really is just big and scary and like your gut reaction when you're standing at the door for 30 minutes of like, maybe I should just leave. (laughs) Maybe I should just leave because something here does not feel right. This doesn't feel like where I want to be. Is it a place that doesn't answer the door for 30 minutes and doesn't know I'm coming (laughs) and all of those pieces, right? Taking time to check in with yourself and notice when something feels off track gives us an opportunity to intentionally decide where we're headed next. Mm -hmm. I like it. Yeah. I, so important. (laughs) And that's been something that like for me, yeah, I was definitely not doing when I worked at Phoenix House, checking in with myself. No, right? Not checking in with Mm -hmm. myself physically, right? Do I need to go to the bathroom? Not checking in (laughs) with myself really emotionally because yeah, if I took a really good hard look at it, it would have made me run the other way. And I wanted to like really stick in this experience. So yeah, I, I was not checking in with myself. I was, I would say probably, you know, mildly dissociated and checked out 
most of the time, especially when I wasn't at work, um, because I didn't want to look at how hard it was to to be there. Um, so yeah, I love that you're talking about that of like, you know, just that's a really great place to, to start is just checking in with yourself and noticing, okay, are things starting to feel off track? Um, I was kind of thinking, building off of that, how it's also really important to think long term. And you were kind of touching on this somewhat, Kate, about that idea of making sure that you're going to be able to have longevity in whatever field mm-hmm. you're in. Um, because one of the things that I ended with my sharing on was how I rarely took any time off. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think when we're just so in the grind, we're not actually thinking about when am I going to take a vacation? <laughs> like we're just not thinking ahead because we're just trying to survive day to day. So if you have found yourself in that place, listener, it's your job, no matter what you're doing for work. And especially if you have accrued some time off, mm-hmm. um, schedule it. I don't care if it's a vacation where you're getting on a plane and going somewhere or a staycation. Doesn't matter. As soon as you can, go to whoever you need to go to at your job and schedule some time off. Whether it's a day, whether it's a week, take some time off. Especially if you can tell after listening to us talk today where you're like, oh, I'm resonating with a lot of what they're saying about burnout. Oh, I have felt those things too. Yeah, I'm dreading going into work every single day. Oh yeah, I've started to, you know, whatever whatever it is. And dreading going into work is more than just liking going into work. That feels important to clarify. Um, but if you're dreading, schedule some time off as soon as possible so that you do give yourself a little light at the end of tunnel to look, a light at the end of the tunnel to look forward to. Um, and don't feel guilty about it. And I know it's so easy to, because I did. I felt it. Um, and I know many people do. Many people cite that as a reason for why they don't take time off. Well, I'm needed. Yeah, you are. And also, <laughs> don't be a martyr. Like, take <laughs> take care take care of yourself so that you can actually do a good job when you're at work. If you don't do this, you're not going to do a good job when you're there. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. get some time off scheduled like go into talk with someone within the next couple of days of your job and get something on the books. <laughs> it's a very practical <laughs> tip, but I think it's an important yes. one. Yes. <laughs> uh, you see now it's funny. I was like, Oh, in the order that I set up, I ought to go next. But apparently um, instead of you lovely ladies who are both uh, lovely and in control, as we talked about at your beginning, <laughs> I'm just going to uh, direct the whole thing and actually uh, cue you up for your last one, Tara. <laughs> My last tip for everybody um, really is about being nice to yourself, that that component of self-compassion, of taking time to recognize that you yourself are important and need care and uh, maintenance is is vital. Um, Somebody recently told me that uh, instead of self-care, they're calling it um, human maintenance. And hmm. I, I liked that idea of like, I don't think twice about taking my car to go get this oil changed or when it gets dirty, you know, giving it a rinse or, you know, when my little engine light comes on, I go, yeah, I should, I should need to go do that because I want to have a car to get to the thing to do the next thing, right? Which I, I recognize I come from a really privileged place to be able to have a car and do those pieces and to respond to those needs as we need to. But that mentality of maintenance is just a part of owning a car. 
And I think that sometimes we forget that maintenance is a part of being a human. And it's not just (laughs) as simple as like taking a shower. It's also things like noticing when your heart is racing when you're on your way to work and saying like, huh, if my car started revving like wildly out of the blue, I would immediately say, hmm, something is wrong. We must do something about this. But a lot of times we take that heart racing and go, huh, I wonder what that is. And then go to work and don't think about it again until it happens again. Day right? After day after so day that after idea day. of, <laughs> yeah, of be nice to yourself, take care of yourself and and be, be a part of an, uh, an active part of your maintenance process. Oh, I absolutely love that because I... I know, I think of self-compassion, self-care, human maintenance, might borrow that one. Oh, yeah. Um, I tell people to babysit themselves, but human maintenance may be the way that I start framing that, so I love that. Um, But one of the ways that I talk to my clients about uh, the concept of self-care is I sort of break it into two broad categories of being nice to yourself versus being kind to yourself, These are meanings I am imposing on these words. They're not inherent to it. Um, If you go to Google and be like, I don't know if that's what kind means, Kate. I know, but bear with me. (laughs) I know, which is weird coming from a word nut like me, but bear with me. Um, So the way that I kind of conceive of this is that nice is taking care of your immediate wants. Mm -hmm. Not even immediate needs, right? But like immediate wants. Um, you could see this as almost maybe giving in a little bit to the kid in you or right something that just like, well, but I want this thing, right? I can treat myself to this stupid candy bar if I'm in the you know, <laughs> in the checkout line of the grocery store because it caught my eye. Maybe it's terrible and I take one bite, right? Like, I don't know, um, right? Or I can, why, why are all my things food oriented? Can we tell this dinner time? I was going to say, I can order takeout today if I want to. <laughs> There you go. Sleep in, right? Instead of doing my, you know, going to the gym and exercising this morning, I'm just going to lay in bed until the last possible moment, right? So it's it's like, it's fun. It's nice. It's fluffy, right? It's, it's showing up for yourself in a way that kid you probably would have appreciated very much, right? And that is important. I do not want to sell this short. Um, there's, I think, there can be a paucity of times that we are nice to ourselves. We think it's maybe immature or not responsible or, right, there's all sorts of shame we can put around being nice to ourselves. Um, so I do want to say I am not meaning to jump on the anti-nice bandwagon. I think nice is very important. <laughs> um, but of the two, for burnout specifically, I'm going to lean towards kind, which I think of as taking the longer term view of yourself, right? So you probably heard this a little bit in my talking about this idea of longevity, right? Thinking about the longer you (laughs) than the immediate you. Um, And so this is going to be things like going to the gym instead of sleeping (laughs) or, you know what? I have eaten like trash for the last several days. Perhaps what I eat today can be a little bit more nourishing to my body and not just to my sense of want for comfort, right? Or, you know, I'm going to, you know, whatever the thing is, maybe you do need that more sleep. Maybe there are times when sleeping in could be the kind thing. What have you been doing lately, right? <laughs> like, have you been? So, but it's this idea of, all right, of the human maintenance, right? Of the kind side of things, of things that aren't just going to be like, wee, that's nice, but actually something that nourishes you in some regard or another. Um, You know, we'll talk about this more in the closing moments, um, but right, like different, we can be nourished in different ways and places. Um, 
And I guess what I think of broadly is that so many people seem to see self-care as synonymous with a lot of the more maybe nice stuff a lot of the times, or was simply mm-hmm. the concept of relaxation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think self-care can be so much more active than that. Um, and sometimes a little less immediately <laughs> appealing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> kind things aren't always inherently as immediately appealing as I think all nice things are immediately appealing. Yeah. And that's the, you know, appeal. Of yeah. <laughs> so that's my last one is if, you know, lean into being kind to yourself. Love Maybe it. being a good parent to yourself. If I'm going back to that idea of babysitting, right? Those things that are keep your human self running. Mm-hmm. I think I get to close us out. I do. Um, you bring us home. Yeah. And after I share this, we're going to turn it over to Tara just briefly to wrap us up. But then this really plays into the closing moment. So mm-hmm. keep in mind <laughs> what I'm saying between now and when we get to the closing moment. Um, because I mentioned this when I was sharing about how I really view it as there's three different types or three different ways we can get burnt out. And so it felt important to talk about what you could say like the remedy is or the treatment or the antidote for each different one. Um, And these are things that can apply whether you are burnt out at your job, whether you are burnt out with parenting or caregiving for someone, Um, whatever you may feel burnout with, I think these things apply. So um, there's mental, emotional, and physical. And so mental, if you're feeling mentally burnt out, which basically just means, again, like your brain is just doing a lot of work. (laughs) Fried. Your brain is fried. Your brain is fried. (laughs) Yeah. Like you have a ton of tasks on your to-do list and you're like, how am I going to do them all? Um, That kind of a thing. So if you're feeling pretty mentally burnt out, probably what you need a little bit is to create some systems that are going to allow you to take some breaks maybe um because a lot of times when we're getting burnt out it's because we are going 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 thinking that's going to help us right the sooner i can get the to-do list done then the better i'm going to feel (laughs) well you know if you're if you're treating this like a sprint rather than a marathon where like maybe you're just jogging along for a while but sprint you're full out well you're going to be way more out of breath at the end of that <laughs> than if you <laughs> slow your pace a little bit for the long term. So you're going to need to figure out what it means to slow your pace a little bit and trying to create some systems to do that. And part of that is going to probably involve asking for help, asking for help from managers, coworkers, um, other family members or friends in your life. Like Um, that delegating piece that Tara was talking about is a perfect example (laughs) of how you might try to create some way to take something off of your mental load and how much you're carrying, uh, for emotional burnout, the, the mindful self-compassion stuff, right? That too, um, that's been mentioned today is going to be really important because if you're feeling emotionally burnt out, you're going to need to notice how you're talking to yourself try to shift that a little bit and making sure that you like have good boundaries in place, whatever that is going to look like. And I know that that may be really hard, but like for me, when I was working at Phoenix house, that might have looked like when I got called in on my day off. And if I wasn't the person on call and this did happen, the person on call would have already been there. (laughs) And then a crisis situation happens and they're like, Hey, we need you to take so-and-so to the doctor, please come in. And I'm like, Oh my God, you know, 
But if I would have just maybe decided for myself, like no matter what, if they call me on a Monday, I'm never going to go in. That would have really helped me. <laughs> that would have really helped me. Um, uh, so it's, <coughs> excuse me. So it could be boundaries like that. Um, but also just, again, kind of filtering in um, what, you are maybe hearing or receiving as feedback and trying to like filter some of that out and just having some emotional boundaries like that. And you're really going to need some good supports in and outside of work to be emotionally well and healthy. You're going to need some people that you can talk to and lean on to process things (laughs) for your emotional well-being. That's really important. Um, And then as far as like physical burnout goes, um, Gosh, and we've kind of been talking about this throughout the tip section, but yeah, that idea of having really kind self-care practices outside of work, like Kate was just touching on, um, and trying to do those things at work too. I mean, Tara, you talked about it. You go to the bathroom after every single one of your client sessions. Fantastic. Like you are physically taking care of yourself at work, right? But it could be something where maybe you set random alarms on your phone. And you're like, every time this alarm goes off, I'm going to drink some water. Right. Or every time this alarm goes off, I'm going to take a deep breath for a minute (laughs) or whatever it is like having something ideally at work and outside of work too to physically take care of yourself and getting lots of actual rest and sleep, like Mm -hmm. actual rest um, where you are not doing much with your body (laughs) you're just going to need sometimes if you are in a physically demanding field and not everybody is but if you are in a physically demanding field you are going to need literal physical sleep and rest that may look like trying to take naps and i'm not a big nap person i have become much more of a nap person since my son was born a year ago (laughs) now i can take (laughs) naps because i'm a tired mom (laughs) i couldn't for a long time but try to train your body Honestly, try, try, practice taking naps or at least laying there for like an hour. If you don't actually fall asleep, actually let yourself rest. It's going to be so important. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what I've got. Oh, that's awesome. Well, before we hop into the closing moment, Tara, you have anything you want to promote to us? You know, I I took myself out of my promotion today, although you can find me wherever. I'm sure if you just Google my name, you'll you'll figure those things out. But we're going to post it outside of the Facebook group. Don't worry. Oh, well, thanks. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I really wanted to introduce you guys to um, a movement called uh, Don't Give Up Signs. It was created by Amy Wolf in Newburgh, Oregon, which is a town really close near here um, where I am. And she created these signs because of a, a suicide that had happened at our local high school. And uh, she said to herself, like, what would happen if we just were nice to each other and put out there in the world that people should not give up? What would happen? And so she made this like black and white sign and put it on her lawn and kind of found ways to build more and more of them and put them all over town. And the reason that I came upon this um this sign was I had just gone through a really horrible ordeal at my old job. I just started my private practice. I was feeling so much uh, shame and failure and, um, you know, being a fraud, being somebody who uh, wasn't going to be able to make all of this thing happen. And I drove down our local highway and there was this sign that said, your mistakes do not define you. And I pulled over to the side of the road next to that sign and I literally bawled for like 20 minutes, just like feeling that truth in my soul. And 
I see on her Instagram and through, help, you know, um, connecting with her organization over time, just how many people see that sign that says, don't give up, like, you know, we're in this together, or you matter. And, and their lives are, are affected, and their lives are changed, and people are feeling that warmth from just a black and white sign sitting on the side of the road. Um, so she sells all of her stuff at cost. It's a little nonprofit. Um, I buy this stuff for everybody. I give it out at Halloween for, you know, my goodies for, for kids. Um, and uh, I just really think it's a really powerful movement that if there are more of us who can just keep looking at each other and saying, you matter, don't give up. I know you've made mistakes and that is a mistake is not who you are. The more we're going to give each other hope and hope is a foundational element to us being able to make it to the next kind of steps of our lives. So um, you can find all of her stuff at don'tgiveupsigns.com. And um, I, uh, I would love for people to not just support her and her vision, but to pass the word on to each other that we, we all matter. Oh, that's really beautiful. And we'll post that in the yeah. in the Facebook group as well. Of yes, very, we will. Definitely, because that sounds like a wonderful thing to, to support. So thanks for letting us know about it, because I certainly hadn't heard about it either. So I appreciate it. Well, if we're all ready, I think that brings us to a closing moment. So go ahead and find a comfortable position, whatever that means for you today. Sitting, standing, laying down, walking, whatever feels good and right in your body. And if you feel safe and comfortable doing so, I invite you to go ahead and close your eyes. As per usual, we're going to start by just noticing your breath. You don't need to breathe any more slowly or any more deeply than you do naturally. It's just about paying attention. Just about really focusing in on the rhythms and the sensations of your breath. And letting them welcome you. Into the room and into your body and into the present moment. So for today's closing moment exercise, I'd like you each to consider where in your world might you be experiencing burnout right now? It certainly could be at your job or in your career, but as you said, this could also be something taking place in your family, in your community, in your household. Just take a moment and consider where might burnout be showing up for you? When you have an idea of where you might be experiencing burnout or getting close to that edge, I want you to take a moment and consider whether the load, rather the area where you're the most taxed in that experience is mental, emotional, or physical. And if this is something that the mental load is leaving you overburdened and your brain fried or emotionally wrung out, or even an abusive situation in that sense, or 
something that's just plain hard on your body. Once you've decided between mental, emotional, and physical, where you're being taxed the most in this situation, I want you to try and think of at least one thing you can do that nourishes you in that arena of your life. I think of something nourishing you when it recharges you more than it takes from you. This doesn't have to be something that requires no effort. It just has to be something that gives back more than it takes. Or is something that you feel nourished mentally? What sparks your sense of curiosity or creativity? Or what helps you feel soothed in a mental space? If you identified the emotional realm, what helps you feel seen? What helps you feel known? Where do you feel like your load is lightened? What gives you hope? What gives you a vision of the future? What gives you a vision of yourself that's in alignment with who you know yourself to be? And if it's something physical, how do you best nourish your body? Is this something where it's movement, like stretching or exercise? Is it something around food or sleep, relaxation or rest? What gives the most back to you in that arena? Whichever one of these that you're considering if at all possible, try to bring to mind something that nourishes you there that is accessible. Maybe not this moment, maybe not tomorrow, but basically within your reach to do or give to yourself. If you need a moment to shift what you've considered to meet that, go ahead and take that moment. I'd love for you to leave this meditation with an intention or maybe even a plan to try and give back to yourself in whatever way you've identified to help nourish yourself to help recharge yourself and help either heal or stave off that burnout but for now you can go ahead and come back into your body whether that be through a couple of slow, deep breaths or some basic stretching, rotating your wrists or shoulders, ankles or neck. Whenever you feel ready, you go ahead and open your eyes. Thanks so much, everyone. Thanks, everybody. 